Welcome to Literary Friction on NTS. I am Carrie Plitt here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi Octavia. Hi Carrie. How are you doing today? I'm all right, Del. How are you? I'm good. Um, how did you sleep last night? I slept pretty deeply, not long enough. How about you? The same. I had to get up quite early to come into the studio. Yeah, today, same here. So I'm a little, I'm a little groggy, but I've had some coffee. Do you feel rested? Do you feel relaxed? Well, interesting you should ask. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, can I just say the cheese is on the other foot today? Yeah, you're getting, I, I've, maybe that won't work with our dynamic. I don't know, fuck it. Okay, anyway. <laughs> interesting you should ask, because the theme of our show today is the fictional trope of rest and relaxation, and how authors have explored this kind of inertia, from the tale of Rip Van Winkle to the Swiss sanatorium in Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain. Our theme is inspired by our guest, the novelist Otessa Moshveg, whose brilliant new novel is called My Year of Rest and Relaxation. In it, a privileged young woman living on the Upper East Side in Manhattan, dissatisfied with her life, decides to embark on a year of sleep and seclusion in her apartment, aided by lots of prescription drugs and a permissive psychiatrist. Octavia, do you want to say a little bit more about Otessa? Sure, Carrie. Otessa Moshveg is a fiction writer from New England. Her first book, Maglu, a novella, won the Fence Modern Prize in prose. She's also the author of the short story collection Homesick for Another World. Her stories have been published in the Paris Review, The New Yorker and Granta, and have earned her a Pushcart Prize, an O. Henry Award and Plimpton Discovery Prize and a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. Eileen, her first novel, was shortlisted for the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Man Booker Prize. And her latest novel, which you just mentioned, is out now and it's bloody brilliant. Yeah, we are so excited to talk to her also because she's from Massachusetts, which yeah, is where I'm from. Carrie's big into And also Very you guys might remember Carrie actually recommending her first, her second novel, Eileen, yes. on the show ages ago. Yeah, I'm a fan yeah. already, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so today we'll talk to Otessa more widely about the theme of rest and relaxation in literature. And finally, we will give you our book recommendations as usual. So kick off your shoes, recline, and stay with us for the next hour on Literary Friction. I like what you did there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not quite. It was a little obvious. I don't know. I'm I into tried. it. We could try recording this lying down. A challenge. I think that would be a challenge for the tech people. <laughs> <laughs> Otessa Moshveg, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction. Thank you for having me. So we've asked you to start with a reading from your latest novel, My Year of Rest and Relaxation. Could you set it up for us? Yes. Um, So the premise of this book has a lot to do with sleeping. Um, The the main character, our protagonist and narrator, is on this year-long experiment to see how much she can possibly sleep in an effort to sort of regenerate and renew herself. So I'm going to read from toward the beginning of the novel. It's a scene in which um, the protagonist's best and only friend, a woman named Riva, comes over. I spent that first week in a soft twilight zone. I didn't leave the apartment at all, not even for coffee. I kept a jar of macadamia nuts by the bed, ate a few whenever I rose to the surface, sucked a bottle of Poland Spring, gravitated to the toilet maybe once a day. I didn't answer the phone. Nobody but Riva ever called me anyway. She left me messages so long and breathless that they got cut off mid-sentence. 
Usually she called while she was on the Stairmaster at the gym. One night she came over unannounced. The doorman told her he thought I'd gone out of town. I've been worried, Reva said, barging in with a bottle of sparkling rosé. Are you sick? Have you been eating? Did you take time off of work? I quit, I lied. I want to devote more time to my own interests. What interests? I didn't know you had interests. She sounded utterly betrayed. She stumbled a little on her heels. Are you drunk? I asked. You really quit your job? Reva asked me, kicking her shoes off and flopping down on the armchair. I'd rather eat shit than have to work for that cunt one more day, I told her. Didn't you say she was married to a prince or something? Exactly, I answered. But that was just a rumor anyway. So you're not sick, Reva asked. I'm resting. I lay down on the sofa to demonstrate. That makes sense, Reva said, nodding compliantly, although I could tell she was suspicious. Take some time off and think about your next move. Oprah says we women rush into decisions because we don't have faith that something better will ever come along, and that's how we get stuck in dissatisfying careers and marriages. Amen. I'm not making a career move, I started to explain, but I went no further. I'm taking some time off. I'm going to sleep for a year. And how are you going to do that? Reva asked. I pulled a vial of Ativan out from between the sofa cushions, unscrewed the cap, and fished out two pills. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see Reva squirming. I chewed the pills up, simply to horrify her, swallowed and gagged, then stuffed the vial back between the cushions and lay down and closed my eyes. Well, I'm glad you have a life plan, but to be honest, Reva began, I'm concerned about your health. You've lost at least three pounds since you started taking all those medications. Reva was expert at guessing the weights of things and people. What about the long term? Are you going to take pills for the rest of your life? I'm not thinking that far ahead, and I might not live that long, I yawned. Don't say that, Reva said. Look at me, please. I blinked my eyes open and turned to face the perfumed haze or on the armchair, I squinted and focused. Reva was wearing a dress I recognized from a J. Crew catalog the year before, a raw silk shift in a shade of pink I could only describe as taffy, orange-hued lipstick. Don't get defensive, but you're kind of off these days, she said. You've been sort of distant, and you're just getting thinner and thinner. I think that bothered Reva more than anything. She must have felt that I was cheating in the game of skinniness when she had always worked so hard to play. We were about the same height, but I wore a size two, and Reva wore a four. A six when I'm PMSing, she'd say. The discrepancy between our bodies was huge in Reva's world. I just don't think it's healthy to sleep all day, she said, popping a few sticks of gum in her mouth. Maybe all you need is a shoulder to cry on. You'd be surprised how much better you'll feel after a good cry, better than any pill can make you feel. When Reva gave advice, it sounded as though she were reading a bad made-for-TV movie script. A walk around the block could do wonders for your mood, she said. Aren't you hungry? Thanks for that reading, and I think it captures, well, it gives you a good sense of what this character is like, 
but also the humor in the book. I loved that line about taffy. And I can't, I'm not sure I can describe why it's funny, but it is funny. Um, and so I wanted to actually just start by asking you, did you set out to write a funny book? I'm so interested in humor because I always wonder how much authors think about that as they're writing. I don't think I set off to, to write a funny book. I think I realized I was being funny probably once once I had sort of dug into the character. Um, what tends to happen with me and what happened with almost every single short story that I wrote, which I think are pretty funny, like in hindsight, I'm taking them so seriously and taking myself so incredibly seriously when I'm writing. I mean, it's really ridiculous that when I look back at it, it's it's hilarious because I've been, um, you know, that there's like this exaggerated sense of self-importance and drama. Um, but, you know, like things like the, like Taffy, like why is that funny? Or, or the whole character of Dr. Tuttle, things like that. Those are usually just instinctual, and I don't realize that I'm actually being as funny as it is. Um, I'm just trying to be accurate and clear, and then when I when I read it back, it, it, it does seem comedic, and a lot of it is timing, you know, and dialogue is always a good place to be funny because people can say funny things, but the narrator doesn't always have to be so funny. Yeah, and especially in that relationship between Riva and the narrator, where they're just always talking at cross purposes. Exactly. You, you sense that they're not even having a conversation with each other. No, no, they're not very good at community. They don't understand each other, or maybe they do, and they, they're just they just refuse to have compassion for one another, out of self-loathing. One always reflects the other in a way that is really um, unflattering. I think so. It's a difficult friendship. Profoundly difficult, but also, I don't know, there's something in it and in what's drawn out of each character by by their the relief they're thrown into by the behavior of the other one that says, I don't know, it said a lot to me about contemporary femininity, like, you know, the way that women are pitted against one another in very old-fashioned ways still, you know, Um and I found the kind of nuances that you draw between the privilege of the narrator and, you know, I you described Riva as a reacher before, like the kind of aspirations of this other character and the way that those two things enmesh really, um, I found it really poignant actually and funny because there is this comedic gap between their intentions and their desires. Mm -hmm. But there's something that is, I found something quite profoundly moving in their relationship too, because it endures, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, against all the odds. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that was something that um, emerged for you in writing or if that was an intention as well. I knew that they were, that they, they, they had a special bond. I, and, but the narrator is so caged in her expression of emotion that I, I had to get that bond and love across in a way that sort of betrayed her own um, style of communication. So that, that, that was like a level of, of, the, of authorship instead of narrative. And um, I, had to, I had to let Riva sort of speak for herself a lot. And even, 
even if to the narrator Reva sounds really cheesy and ham hammed up and um, over the top, I, I I needed her to go there so that the narrator could respond and there be, you know, it's sort of like two two extreme swings of a pendulum in order to to find some middle ground. I don't know if that makes sense, but no, it there does. had there had to be both sides. Getting back to the plot of the book itself, what interested you about this project of trying to sleep for a year? I think it probably started as hyperbole, like something that the character said that she was going to do, and then I decided to take it literally as the author. I, I don't remember exactly how how the premise started. I mean, I don't I don't think that I was taking it as seriously as I ended up taking it at the beginning. I was mostly trying to understand this character and her environment and what she was responding to. Um, and it it wasn't until I had her go to the psychiatrist that I was like, oh, I can actually write this story um, about this woman who tries to sleep for so long. And And then what interested me was the challenge of writing a book about a woman who barely leaves her apartment. Um, and I've, I've, I've been attracted to characters in confinement a lot. I mean, my, my first book, McGlue, is about a character in confinement, literally in jail. Um, my first major novel, Eileen, was, you know, about a woman who works in a juvenile prison whose town is, is very much like a prison in itself. A lot of my short stories are about confinement. I have a, a story called The Locked Room, which is literally about people locked in a room. <laughs> um, so this, it, it is a fictional scenario I'm drawn to. And, and, and I think partly it's just, um, you know, a, a puzzle I need to figure out as the, as the writer. I mean, how do you have a story happen where people aren't doing things? How do you get them to do things when they're in confinement? And, and that becomes a challenge of, in, in the writing um, in terms of structure um, you know, am I doing this through through the writer's imagination or through flashback or through interruption? And, and all of that happens in my year of rest and relaxation. One of the things I enjoyed the most through her perspective was the art world in New York. And she, I mean, it's very acerbic and witty um, the way that she who is, uh, she's worked in a gallery and she describes herself as the bitch who's unfriendly to you when you walk in or something, you know, I'm paraphrasing. Um, but it read as though, you know, that those passages must have been really fun to write, coming up with these imaginary artworks mm -hmm. that were completely bogus and bankrupt, basically. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that process. It was really just fun. Um, I mean, I thought about, um, around this time, so the year, the, the year um, rest and relaxation is the year 2000. And I thought about um, going down to the galleries in Chelsea of New York City and looking at what, what was on display then. And this, this was the age of Damien Hirst who, you know, saw the farm animal in half. I mean, there was still a, there art, some arts seemed still very interested in eliciting a visceral response from the viewer rather than an, a, such an intellectual response, which I think is sort of the direction that art took um, in the 21st century with technology. 
art has become, I think, maybe more conceptual. Don't quote me. I mean, I'm not, I'm not that interested in the, in what's happening. So it was, I, I didn't self censor. It's good when you're kind of stupid because then you can feel free to do whatever you want. But anyway, so I thought about going to galleries at the turn of the millennium and like what what I thought was happening in art. And I was like, well, okay, I really want this gallery to be really kind of over the top. Um, and then the star artist of the gallery, Ping Shi, was somebody who's character I tried to understand a little bit more and and so understanding the art that that he would have been interested in um opened something up for the book and and he became more of a main character let's talk about the main character who is nameless um so we'll call her the narrator and you've said in other interviews that you she came to you before anything else in this book before the project of sleeping before any of the other characters I loved her. I loved that she was so judgmental and vapid in many ways. Um, I like that, you know, the way she didn't care about a lot of things that we're supposed to care about. Um, And I wonder what you liked about her when you first conceived of her and why you wanted to spend time with her and explore her. I liked her in sense of entitlement. Um, I mean, I think part of that was uh, due to her total lack of insecurity um, in the areas of self-esteem and like what she looks like and financial security. It solves a lot of problems for a character so that you can kind of move into different territories. Like my last, the last character of my last novel, Eileen, was principally concerned with what she looked like and how little money she had. I mean, that those were like, th- those were her handicaps. And in my year of rest and relaxation, I really wanted to explore what, okay, what if those aren't even an issue? How much deeper can this character get? And I thought, well, the, the level of depth or, or, or the next level that I'm interested in is really, yeah, like her judgments and criticisms of the world and how, how she relates to it and how much she wants to be a part of it. I, yeah, I liked that she was kind of tough on, on the one hand and also like a total mess on the other. And and that she uses this year on the one hand as a complete escape. I mean, like in, on, like in one interpretation, it's such a cowardly demonstration of her weakness and her neediness um, or, her, or her self-denial. But on the other hand, it's like this very weird and radical act of performance art um hopeful and very inventive and brave it's interesting because she there is something so um individualistic and you know autonomous about her decision and yet it has to be facilitated by other people Mm -hmm. so you have the character of dr tuttle this psychiatrist and then ping shi who comes back and casts her project in a different light by bringing his artistic eye to it and they mm-hmm. kind of end up in a in a sort of oddly contractual relationship don't they yeah. um but I wonder if you could talk a bit more about Dr Tuttle because she's such a she I found her such a grotesque character <laughs> but in in a kind of brilliant way um but there's something 
yeah, there was something very, I found very evocative about this figure who has such control over her patient um, through the medications that's, that she's prescribing, being also so um, out of control herself in mm. some ways, right? Um, but I wonder how she came to you and, and how you feel about her. Dr. Tuttle was a character that came to, well, I should say the narrator was someone who came to me through the writing. I mean, she revealed herself bit by bit. Dr. Tuttle revealed herself fully formed from the get-go. I mean, I could see her, I could smell her, I knew what her house looked like, or her home office, I mean. I knew, you know, like, how she thought. And she's, she, she is not someone with a great amount of self-awareness. And I think that it was very important. She isn't, um, I mean, I don't know how much I, I, I prescribe to this idea of like flat and round characters, but I didn't, I, like, I had to kind of see her as flat um, in order to, for her to engage without dilemma in, in this project of sleeping. And people ask me like, oh, did you have a psychiatrist like this? And I'm like, well, I can't answer that question. But I can say that she demonstrates a lot of my cynicism about the field of psychiatry and the way that it's working in, you know, contemporary society. Things didn't used to be like this. And the pharmaceutical industry is extremely powerful, powerful enough that it's changing the way that we think about our own lives and how we respond to our own unhappiness or whatever. Um, not to dismiss people with like actual mental illness, but it it's very hard to find someone who isn't on psych meds today, and I really have to wonder why. Um, the way that we, the pharmaceutical industry, creates medicines by making up chemical compounds and then seeing what they do, not the other way around not like oh we have people suffering from xyz what do they need i mean it's like this really kind of slapped together science i mean i don't want to dismiss it but um it's terrifying i mean it it's it actually terrifies me i wanted to ask you about eileen which you mentioned before because it, it was interesting to me that you you almost set these characters up as opposed to each other, and at least in terms of what they want. But for me, reading those two books next to each other, um, I see a lot of comparisons between Eileen and the narrator in this book. And I, I wonder if you, either while you're writing or after the fact, see ways in which actually they're two sides of maybe a similar way of being in the world, which is has to do with rejecting it in some sense. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably true. I mean, I think they're probably, the thing that they have in common is me, principally. And I like characters that are just have one toe in, really, but most of them is out. And, and, and maybe they're sort of like on the edge of thinking like well how much do I really want to participate in this society doesn't it it's kind of bullshit and like I'm looking at it it's so, like I'm, I'm looking at it and all I see is bullshit but I don't want to be totally alone so I'll keep a toe in 
and that toe is going to be very judgmental, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, I think they, they, they are both of me. I mean, these women are both of me. Everybody is, everybody in my book is of me, obviously. But, um, yeah, I like, I like to choose, um, narrators who, who can express maybe to an extreme some things that I natural that naturally pop into my head sometimes I um you said in another interview that writing this novel made you a bit insane mm-hmm. <laughs> um and I mean talking about how obviously every character that a writer writes is of them and of their psyche um was there anything in particular about this narrative that took you to the edge of your own reason or was it just the experience of writing in general? In this book, what drove me nuts was not knowing how to resolve the story. And what is what what you see now is like a pretty clear and obvious trajectory. But as I was writing it, like I was I went on so many wrong tangents that took me hundreds of pages out of the story. And um, that was really, that, that had never happened to me before. Um, I mean, that's such a luxury problem. Like, oh, like I, I wrote hundreds of pages in the wrong direction. But it, it, it drove me nuts because I couldn't figure out what, wh- how to get her out of this. Um, how to wake her up. And being caught in this like very murky realm of my imagination without any clarity was really maddening and I felt like I was writing with like cotton in my ears or something I couldn't hear I couldn't hear um and it wasn't until I developed Ping Shi I went back to the beginning and looked again at Ping Shi and that's when I understood that, well, there's a reason I put him in the book. Um, and so I, d- I, I worked on that, and that led to me figuring out that, okay, there is a resolution to her project. It's just that she needs somebody uh, to come in and help, I guess. Help. But, yeah, hold her hostage, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um. And you have said in in another interview that the next project you're doing is on a slightly different level in that you're engaging more with sincerity. Mm -hmm. And I was really interested in that because I think earnestness and sincerity right now culturally aren't very prized, Mm -hmm. um, especially in the in the sort of cultural objects that seem to be working and capturing a mass audience. Um, But I also feel a deep need for sincerity and I wonder if this idea is coming from that place or if it's just a different register that you want to explore I don't think it's a response to anything but my own life um I think I kind of like in the same sense that when I finished my short story collection I I knew that's it like I'm not going to write another short story like I got it I did what I wanted to do. I don't need to keep doing this. Um, but I, what I wanted to do was write my year of rest and relaxation. So I did that. And that, once that was over, um, like a lot of things in my life happened, you know. And 
less interested in I'm less interested in satirical criticism and probably I think I'm, I'm more interested in what scares me in my own writing which is myself and what is true um in looking at my relationships more honestly or, or or just my experience more honestly and not take and and keeping it like keeping it sober in a certain way like not not pushing on it to, to the point where it becomes comedy or becomes exaggerated but keeping it um like of the heart more I don't know if I'll successfully do that. Like I don't I don't know how I don't know really what sincerity in literature will mean for me. But what I do know is that I'm inspired to write this novel that is kind of a development from my very first book, McGlue, which was a sort of a historical novella and and brought with it like a whole different lexicon and um, point of view. The book that I'm researching now takes place at the turn of the 20th century, and it's about um, a Chinese immigrant who's a, a teenager, actually, and a girl who essentially immigrates in drag because to, to California in, like, 1905, something like that. Um, and this is during the Chinese Exclusion Act when it was legal for Chinese women to move to the United States and her experience. And it's like, that's not funny, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, that, yeah, and, no, and you're I, right. And, and like, it's funny I, that we laughed in that point. Right. Yeah, you're right. It, I take her very seriously. And um, the, book, the book feels much more immediately personal. I don't know. I've lost a lot of people in the last year, in the last year and a half. I've like lost several people that were really, really close to me, and it kind of makes, it, it kind of just takes the gas out of my engine in terms of making fun of things. Um, not that I want this next book to be like an expression of pain, because if I tried to do that, it would probably end up being ridiculous. I just want to tell a story. That is um, that feels more real, um, and and that is maybe also taking this question of like existential mystery more seriously because I've been thinking so much about death and not just the ennui of like sitting around in a room, you know. Yeah. Um. That makes me happy to hear that. Cool. Because <laughs> that's a book I want you to write. I'll write it. Okay. Otessa, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on Literary Friction. Thank you so much for coming in. Oh, it's totally my pleasure. Thanks.
This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright to talk about this month's theme, which is Rest and Relaxation, inspired by our guest who we just spoke to, Otessa Moshfeg, and her recent novel, My Year of Rest and Relaxation. Very creative, I know, but I think we are both pretty excited about exploring this theme because it seems to tap into a lot of different ideas about sort of inertia and stasis in literature and why people choose or are sort of forced into a period of rest. Yeah, totally. And are they, is it chosen or as you say, or is it forced and is it because of illness or is it because of something else? I don't know, you know, like I I thought immediately of, you know, when pregnant women are advised to take to their beds for the duration of their pregnancy and that kind of thing. Um, And then also obviously depression and, you know, can taking time out for rest and relaxation, especially in this moment where self-care is such a buzzword right like what does it mean to truly take care of yourself is it uh you know is it unconscionable to take time out of productivity in order to heal or is it selfish is it self-harming to take time out and sleep for a year like the narrator in Otessa's book does or is it actually very vital fundamental survival question you know like in the book there's a bit where she says humans don't hibernate and yes and no you know like and and that's what's interesting about looking to literature I mean Rip Van Winkle is a hibernating character isn't he yeah Um, yeah, and Sleeping Beauty you can't not think about Sleeping Beauty and those other you know other sort of morality tales almost aren't they about um what happens when you recharge or step out of society in that way yeah and I think you're right to say that one reason why people sleep in literature is this sort of like fantastical and terrifying thought experiment of what if somebody actually does totally switch off from the world with no knowledge of what's happening what does that lead to and I think that's why Rip Van Winkle is such an enduring story you know he misses the revolutionary war but I think it's it's worth also talking about other reasons why people rest in novels and a lot of times it's due to illness so in the intro I mentioned The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann which I think is a sort of touchstone for this kind of thing Um, this a man visits a sanatorium in the Swiss Alps um, before the first world war I think to visit his cousin who is ill and then he himself gets ill and stays there for seven years yeah, and the uh, fascinating idea that in that novel it's contagious almost. You know, he goes as a visitor and then he becomes a patient. It makes me think of hysteria and all those kind of, you know, the the murkier psychological disorders where the boundary between the psychological and the physical is a bit blurry as well. I think also the trope of, of rest and relaxation, it enables characters and writers to time travel a little bit because it's you know the the person is embalmed in a kind of stasis and as a rhetorical device do I mean rhetorical as a narrative device the world can move on without the character and then you can have the relationship of the character reintegrating into the world in different ways you know I was thinking there about Virginia Woolf a little bit and about Sylvia Plath and you know they're not doing those things in very literal senses but in their various kind of explorations of characters whose mental state becomes fragile in a way that means they need to retreat, it enables, it opens up this space for criticism of the way that the kind of dominant culture is moving and how that can be alienating. And I think that there is always something politically radical about a woman resting. 
um, and choosing to rest maybe rather than having it imposed upon her. Um, and I also think that it is in contemporary, in the, in the contemporary literature, in the context of contemporary culture, let's say, even more radical uh, as a choice to, to step aside from productivity because, you know, we are, and I'm going to say the words you love it when I say again, we are enslaved by heteropatriarchal capitalist drives. We can't help it in the Western world, especially. And, you know, we are living in a time where self-worth and productivity are enhanced, tied together and understood as one. Um, so for anyone to step out of that and break that bond, break that contract and say, I'm going to remove myself from any um, burden of productivity and I'm just going to retreat and, and, and nurture or heal or whatever um, is kind of amazing. Yeah, I think, well, two things I was thinking about as as you were talking. One is I loved the way Otessa described the puzzle of her novel about, you know, being having to write about somebody who is sleeping for a year and how do you actually write about that? And I think um, one of the things that can be quite radical about books about rest and relaxation is that they're forced to go in other ways than a sort of traditional plot or narrative because you simply can't have a traditional plot or narrative when somebody's confined in one space or or sleeping all the time. Um, and it often becomes a sort of mental journey. Um, you know, it deals with dreams and maybe it, it's a little more abstract. Um, and in that way, not just the people, but the book itself can be a, enacting a kind of radical shift away. The, the other thing that you were talking about, women's bodies, and I think this is a really important theme to talk about when we talk about rest and relaxation, because, of course, when I when I thought about rest and relaxation, the first thing I thought about was Victorian women being forced into bed rest. And, you know, this crops up in all kinds of Victorian novels, people who are, you know, go to the sea or who are confined to bed because they're suffering from hysteria or, you know, the aftermath of a difficult childbirth. And, and this idea of women and women's bodies as these fragile things that need to heal um, and need and can heal only through inaction. Um, you know, I was thinking of even Dracula with Lucy's character and how, oh, yeah. yeah, and how she, she is, confined to bed and sort of goes mad um but the manifestation of that is is Dracula's bite so it becomes the actual sort of um hypersexual uh like patriarchal world that is causing her to go through this but I just got goosebumps yeah. as you said that <laughs> <laughs> um but then also how I think there was a shift um when female novelists started to question that practice. So there is the famous story, The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, written in 1897, which is about a woman confined to bed rest. And rather than making her heal, it makes her hysterical. And it shows the sort of confines of that society and that practice as well. I mean, Virginia Woolf was famously confined to bed rest herself, and she hated it. And she wrote in Mrs. Dalloway about what a terrible idea it is to shut people up in a room. And so I think Otessa is in some ways following that trajectory by having a novel about a woman who, instead of being confined to this thing, chooses it. And we're at a point where choosing it is actually a radical act. Definitely. But I also think what's interesting about it, and even in Otessa's novel, is she chooses it, the, the narrator chooses it, but she also needs, she needs to involve other people to help her enforce it because it's not something that can be done completely by itself. Um, and when 
I'm thinking about it in a more kind of meta context of the act of reading, the act of reading being something that is related to rest and relaxation. And, you know, you can choose to pick up a book and read and therefore rest and relax maybe while you're reading it although obviously not all reading material is relaxing um, but you need the author to facilitate that you need someone to have done that so the author can become almost the doctor or the jailer or you know are they the healer or are they the antagonist to your period of rest and relaxation as you're reading the book are you saying reading itself is an act of rest and yeah relaxation? babe that's exactly what I'm saying meta I uh-huh. like it I like it <laughs> level upon level that's it I think what we're both getting at is that rest and relaxation at different points in society and for different people have been wildly different kinds of moral acts. Um, And one of the things that's interesting about looking at literature and the way it's depicted these things is how that shifts so much. I mean, even this idea of self-care is so new and, you know, that the, one of the novels that Otessa's was compared to is, um, Oblomov by Ian Goncharov. Have you heard of this? No. Um, but it, it, it's a Russian novel written in the early 1900s about a man who doesn't really leave his room. He's really slovenly. But in that novel, that's a really bad thing. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he was meant to be a sort of satirical figure. He was representative of the lazy aristocracy. You know, sloth is very much equated with sin, even though, of, of course, there are more things going on. But I think now when you write a novel about somebody choosing to rest it's a very different thing totally but also in otessa's narrative as well it is facilitated by her extreme privilege yes and there is a comment in that and i thought i took from otessa's book you could take a a stand that you know an extreme level of wealth and and racial beauty privilege all combined allows you to sleepwalk through life it enables you to be completely dead to all of the struggles that the majority of the population are, are, are having to wrestle through. It's still then a very interesting thought experiment. But there's, you know, there's, I think that I don't think you can ever really examine rest and relaxation outside of the context of a critique of laziness or, you know, and, and totally. that's why it's interesting and, and rich. And like you say, shifts and changes depending on the social context, big time. So let's talk about our favorite novels or books. But I think we're both talking about novels that deal with rest and relaxation. Okay, well, I'm recommending one that you have already recommended on the show um, when you read it as your general recommendation, which is Hot Milk by Deborah Levy. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. Go on. So forgive me. (laughs) (laughs) But it was the first thing I thought of when I started reading Otessa's book because Dr. Tuttle immediately made me think of the doctor character in Deborah Levy's book, Gomez, who is... Very different, a very, very different character, but similar in the sense that he is essentially quite a radical doctor in his motives. And is he a quack or is he actually enlightened? You know, and I mean, Dr. Tuttle in Otessa's book is very clear that she's not enlightened. Um, And Gomez is maybe more of a Jungian character in that, you know, there seems to be method to his madness, but his madness reaches quite extreme pitches at different times. Um, And I guess the character that's resting and relaxing in this is is. Um, the narrator's mother, Rosa, who has this mysterious paralysis um, and she's confined to a wheelchair. So she and her daughter, Sofia, who's the narrator, have gone to this place in southern Spain so that they can be treated by Gomez, this famous, um, Gomez, I should say, uh, this famous doctor. And um, what is fascinating about it is that the 
the dynamic between the mother and daughter is so merged at the beginning of the book that even though the rest and relaxation that's happening is for her mother, mm. Sophia is kind of having to experience it vicariously and also facilitate it. Um, and then what happens throughout the course of the novel is that is this is this young woman finds new ways to regain her sense of autonomous identity separate from her mother. Um, but it, yeah, it, you know, it's interesting because when I first came across the book, I listened to it on Da, 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 book at bedtime which actually <laughs> I, as I wrote that I realized I haven't been listening to book at bedtime for oh, a really no, long time Octavia, so I know it's why? terrible I just have had my mind in other things I okay. think I've, yeah um I'll, I'll, I'll return but when I listened to the book I I loved it but it also rankled me really it got under my skin in in a way and and book at bedtime is always abridged so I went back to it in text form and read it and found it really brilliant um and realize that, you know, often when things rankle me like that, it's because they're touching some kind of nerve. And unsurprisingly, I, I had quite a profound identification with various different elements of the thing, which I think was why it kind of captured me so much. Anyway, it's very rich. It's very poetic. I found it unsteadying in the best kind of way. Um, and and Carrie also loved it, too. So I did love it, too. That's a double. <laughs> that's a double recommendation from us here. Yeah. And I. It brings back the point you made about the Magic Mountain about Henri being or or illness being sort of catchable. Yeah, it's spreading totally. Um, and I, you f- you feel that in that novel, big time. It's all, it's all about a push and pull of like catching her mother's state of being. Yeah, and going to this you know other space for healing. Yeah, that that you know the the healing couldn't happen at home. It couldn't happen in their daily life. They had to go to find this Wizard of Oz character, but they also had to go and be in this physical place that's very different from their yeah. daily existence totally also recommended by me yes <laughs> well <laughs> first like first ex- recommended by carrie let's just that's be not real what I meant. <laughs> that's not what i meant um i'm gonna be i guess this isn't a very original segment because i am also going to recommend a book also recommended on the show although recommended by me personally <laughs> so i'm re-recommending <laughs> a book but i want to talk about it in the context of rest and relaxation you go for it babe um and it's my name is lucy barton you by love Elizabeth that Stroh, book. which i love i actually love her book olive kittredge more yeah but i, I do Olive, love that olive kittredge um but what uh you know it's it, it it's a novel about a woman who is very ill she's in the hospital in new york city and her mother who she she hasn't seen since she escaped from her small town in illinois comes and sits by the foot of her bed for a week and it's about what happens in that space um and i guess i just want to talk about strout's use of that space as a fictional device um because i think it's really brilliant i think she taps into the weirdness of hospitals and the weirdness of the places that we go when we're ill and the sort of fragility and vulnerability of this main character um, being a way for her to have to re-examine her very difficult relationship with her mother um, and for them to have these kinds of conversations that they probably wouldn't have any other time. And also the fact that her mother shows up only happens because she's suffering from this illness and it's not a novel much like hot milk it's not about reconciliation it's not a big happy ending where they sort out their problems um and i like that the novel resists that but it is a sort of reckoning Mm -hmm. and a reckoning that happens in a space of rest 
um, when two people are sort of forced together who wouldn't otherwise be. And I, I really love that. It's so interesting that all the books are about women and mothers because it's a huge narrative in Otessa's book as well. Yeah. The relationship between the daughter and the mother, the fraught relationship and hot milk and my name is Lucy Barton. Yeah, that is interesting. And I, I think c- it gets back to our discussion of rest and relaxation being a very female space. Exactly. A feminine sphere. And you can't not have hysteria in mind, <laughs> however one feels about that word and what it's come to represent. But interesting. Very, very interesting. interesting. <laughs> well, we will be back in a moment with our other book recommendations. Welcome back to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt here with my co-host Octavia Bright. And also we are rejoined by Otessa Moschweg, who is here to give us her book recommendation as usual. So Octavia, do you want to start with yours? I will. Um, I'm currently reading Aliens and Anorexia by Chris Krauss. And I'm finding it just as exciting and illuminating and energizing and electric as I hoped it would be. Um, I really love her writing. And so whenever I come to something I've not read yet, I'm excited, you know, and and nothing has disappointed me yet, which is also really lovely, (laughs) Um, a really, a really great way to feel. Um, It's described as a novel which confuses me slightly. I don't really experience it as a novel. And it's one of the things I love about her work is that she straddles different boundaries. And Carrie, you know how I feel about classifications. I'm not really down with them. Um, So I appreciate the way that she just races through all different kinds of writing and and puts it all together into one singular text. Um, So this one is, uh, it happens in different timeframes from different perspectives, some of which belong to her, Chris herself, so there's a bit set in, 90, in the 90s in Berlin where she's trying to find a distributor for her film, Gravity and Grace. Um, and then later that decade, she's in LA and she's sending these really detailed sexual fantasy emails to her SM partner, who's a film producer who's in Africa. Um, and then there's a lot about Simone uh, Weil. Well, I always say Simone Vale, but I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. I don't know. Simone Weil. It's spelled W-E-I-L, who is a French philosopher and a political activist and a mystic. And she's quite a a controversial figure these days, actually. I really love her writing. Um, A lot of people find her very distasteful. Um, Her book, Gravity and Grace, inspired Chris Krause's film. And she was an anorexic. She was very famous for rejecting food um, later in her life and actually died from complications from starvation. And uh, her political ideals kind of led her to this position where she basically decided to limit her food intake to that which was the standard for citizens living in German-occupied France um, in an act of solidarity. And she deteriorated. She ended up in a sanatorium. And um, Chris Krauss's kind of understanding of anorexia is really empathetic. And it goes against the majority understanding of it as being to do with, um, you know, rejecting femininity and, and 
placing it in a very kind of heteropatriarchal Freudian context. She looks at it as something much more mystical and, and philosophical, I guess, and understands it as an attempt to leave the body completely and to free yourself from the cynicism of nourishment under capitalism. So it felt like a really interesting parallel to your book, Otessa, to be reading it alongside um, another character who also was seeking a way of kind of self-abandonment through choice. Um, I haven't finished it yet, but I love it. I just love it. I could I could read, I could live in Chris Krause's writing for forever. It kind of gives me all the nourishment that I that I need. So yeah, I'd suggest everyone read it. A rousing recommendation. <laughs> I was just a fangirl, it's awful. We had Chris on the show ages ago and it was quite hard to contain myself. <laughs> Otessa, could we have your recommendation, please? Sure, that's kind of a hard act to follow. I haven't uh, prepared this very carefully, but the book that I would recommend, especially right now, because Michael Andache is getting a sort of like renewed appreciation here because of the, what is it, the Golden Booker Award yeah. for the English Patient, and he has a new book out, which I haven't read. Um, but I, I, I wanted to recommend one of his early books. It's a novella called Coming Through Slaughter. Um, it came out in 1976, and it's based on uh, two real characters um, in Louisiana. Uh, the f- most the, the the primary character is this um, jazz musician named Buddy Bolden, and and then there's also this character. It's a photographer named Belloc. Um, but it's a very it, the book, the structure, and the writing of the book sort of reflect the structure and insanity of jazz as interpreted through Bolden as he's sort of losing his mind. Um, But it's absolutely beautiful. And unlike anything I've ever read, um, the the, the imagery and poetry of of the book is like stunning, unforgettable, and um, something that I, I... I feel like it's so special that I couldn't, I couldn't compare it. It doesn't feel like a book, really. It feels like a work of art. Um, so if, if you think you know Andache, um, <laughs> go back and read Coming Through Slaughter. It's, it will blow your mind. I have a confession, which is I've never read anything by Andache. And er- people always recommend him to me. And I don't, I sort of don't know why I haven't picked up his books yet. But maybe, do you think that's, the best first thing to read or should I go with the more conventional stuff I don't even know if the stuff now is more conventional I think this is just I I I don't know I mean I couldn't compare but I know that he also has a book about Billy the Kid that's like he's like they're coming through slaughter is a really slim book um it's hard to call it a novel it's more like it's just it's like a piece of music Mm. it wouldn't hurt you to read it (laughs) (laughs) great thank you sure so i'm going to recommend a novel called the water cure it's by sophie mcintosh who is a she's a debut novelist and it's just been long listed for the booker prize and there was a big auction for it in the uk um in many ways it sort of fits into the mold of some of the things that are doing really well right now I guess you could classify it as feminist dystopia in the vein of The Handmaid's Tale or things like that. And I and and frankly I was a little bit tired of that genre. A lot of books are selling in that genre. Um there are only so many different scenarios you can come up with 
um, with ways in the future in which women's bodies will be restricted and using that as a way to talk about um, patriarchy and things like that. I mean, though I am very interested in those themes, obviously, but a, a number of people recommended this to me. And and so I started reading it. And um, it's the story of, it's set on an island somewhere um at some time you don't really know where we are or when we are or or what's happened but um there's a family living on an island a father a mother and three girls and their father king has been preparing them for the arrival of men and all of the bad things that these men will do to them um, when they arrive through various sort of quite sadistic games um and different things then king leaves to pick up supplies and never returns so he's dead and they find his shoe I think or something like that then they are sort of left to fend for their own but then men arrive um and it's about that but um it's told in this really interesting way it's quite weird it's quite sort of dreamy in the way that maybe the virgin suicides is um sometimes the the girls speak as a unit sometimes they speak themselves we get different perspectives and voices. You're not really sure what's going on. And I don't know. I, 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 really, I really liked it. I, I really enjoyed reading it. It's compelling, but it also takes you in directions you don't necessarily think it's going. And it, it constantly surprised me. And I just thought the, the language was, was really excellent. I mean, obviously, so much care had been taken to give voice to these girls and also to to just maintain a sort of uncomfortable, eerie, weird atmosphere throughout the entire book. So I really liked it. A friend texted me literally yesterday and said, I've just finished this book. You're going to fucking love it. Get a copy. So yeah, no, I, yeah. I, I would recommend it. I want it. to read it. It sounds very, it sounds great. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewee, Otessa Moshfag, Josh Farmer at NTS, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. Please do say hi. We love to hear from you. And if you like what we do, rate and review us and we'll love you forever. It really helps us reach more listeners. Yes, it really does. Thank you very much. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Blah. <laughs> Please just do it. We'd yeah. really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we'll be back in a month. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs>